Good evening, everybody. I'd like to begin tonight the subject I want to talk about of Wu Wei, beyond action and inaction, sometimes translated as non-doing, not to be confused with passivity or trying not to do anything, or quietism. Wu Wei in Taoism, in Tibetan Jadrel, free from willful action or beyond action and inaction both I'd like to begin by reading from the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu Stephen Mitchell's translation much recommended if you're not familiar with it Do you want to improve things? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. How can that be improved upon? If you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. When you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. The master does her job and then lets go. She understands that the universe is forever out of control and that trying to dominate and direct events goes against the current of the great Tao, the great flow. The master does her job thoroughly and lets go. Whatever happens, happens. Because she believes in herself she has no need to try to convince others because she is content with herself she doesn't need others approval because she accepts herself the entire universe accepts her the master sees things just as they are without trying to control or improve them she lets them go in their own way and resides at the very center of the universal circle. So almost every line here is something one could meditate on, contemplates quite a while. She does her job thoroughly. She does her best and lets go. Whatever happens, happens. She lets everything go its own way and resides at the very center of the universal circle. How unlike most of us most of the time. <clears throat> and yet how similar also. By accident now and then don't we find ourselves somehow somewhat moved out of our own way and things just happen sort of by accident hitting the mark once in a while you know we cast I put it in the first person we can each take the first person position I cast a huge shadow over my true self 
we each cast a huge shadow over our true nature, our true self, our transpersonal, limitless, selfless self. And yet sometimes that self breaks through, that irrepressible self-nature breaks through. I don't know why, but we can't quite keep it out of the picture. (laughs) It might bring us here, or even better, it might bring us home, home to where we truly live and are, where we don't have to do anything more. We are at home, and we know it. We're always at home, but do we always know it? We do belong here, but do we always know it? I'm afraid not. So what can we do to know that we're at home, to sense, to connect with this belongingness, belonging to ourselves and to where we are and what we are? It's not something we can fabricate. It's not something we can meditate into position. It's not just getting the right state of mind. You know, it's just another meditative holding pattern. Even if we encase, even if we experience it sometimes, and encase it in concrete, you know, marry it, gild it, put it on the altar, whatever we do, tie it down like Gulliver all of our little concerns and worries it doesn't last the gulliver of our true nature stands up whenever he she or it wants carrying away all of the ropes and chains and little little putian like petty concerns no matter how many they were and yet we keep trying keep trying to just get the right formula if only we had the right formula. Maybe that next teacher or the new tradition of the month will have the right formula. Maybe it's Dzogchen. Everybody knows, as is always said, Dzogchen is more fun. But maybe it'll be more fun, not only more fun, but more enlightening for me. I better go get some at the health food store or Gaia House or wherever it's being sold. Get the right formula. There is no right formula. It's like trying to find the meaning of life. Who can sell you or tell you that? It's only found in living. So, what is there to do, really? What is there to do? And yet, this big should is always shitting like a big bird on our heads. Don't shoot on on your shoot on yourself. <laughs> A wonderful teacher in India, Punjaji, likes to say, "Call off the search." Did you lose something? <laughs> There's a great story about Mola Nasruddin. He's a kind of trickster of the middle of the Sufi tradition. The great Muller, Nasruddin, is a kind of a master of the absurd. So one night, he's out on his hands and knees in the dark, out under the lamppost, 
going like this with his nose near the ground and his neighbor comes by and he says, Muller, what are you doing out here? And Muller Nasruddin says, I'm looking for the key to my front door. And his friend says, did you lose it out here? Why are you looking at it? Did you drop it here? And Muller said, no, I think I dropped it near the door, but the light's here. <laughs> And that's like us going afar, you know, the light, the teacher, the teaching, the something is there. But is that really where it's at, what we've lost or what we're looking for there? Because the light, you know, because something's happening there, advertised, for sale, highly touted, talked about by all your friends. What happens when you come back from there? Then you've been there, and you can tell all your friends about it. And finally, they've all been there. But so what? <laughs> what do you have afterwards? Then look for the next there. And this is all of our, what our doings, our fabrication, our contrivances, our efforts are really about. Of course, we can't just stop. Let's be realistic. But let's see through the illusion of how serious and how productive and how necessary this incessant striving really is. We say relax and let go. Just be, nothing to do. These are very simple words, very profound, yet almost impossible to actually practice as we've experienced here. And yet, just that possibility put in front of us, doesn't that illumine our actual behavior, how we're always having to do something, seeking something, wanting something different, unable to accept things as they are in ourselves as we are? No doubt many of us feel imperfect, inadequate, whatever you want to call it, dissatisfied, incomplete, separate, lonely, alienated, so many different flavors. And yet there are not many different remedies for this. There is one unique, universal panacea. There's only one. There's only one way, as all the different teachers say <laughs> about their own way. <laughs> there is not many remedies for these different flavors of suffering there's only one remedy and don't think I'm going to tell you what it is <laughs> better I probably don't know what it is anyway. I don't want you to know that, but <laughs> better we see how many ways are off the mark so we can let go of them. How many false starts and partial efforts we're making so we can actually come home and find out what home really is when we've tried many different places to live and ways to live 
and we can find our own way. You know, it's not like there's one religion or ten religions in the world. Every person has their own religion. And that's the best religion for them, no doubt. And we're creating it, we're living it out every moment. As Rilke says, better continue to live the questioning, the questions, than just be satisfied with some facile, some easy answer. Keep the question alive, the wonder, the not knowing, there's room to experience things freely as they are. Rather than thinking if we do this, we will get that, and we need that, and we don't have that. All of that is very dualistic, relative, and limited, and from outside. It's like somebody telling you, if you just get a water bed, then you'll really feel at home. <laughs> it's not that simple. However hard it might be to get a water bed, it's, that's, you know, it's still not the answer. Home is a lot deeper than that, as you know. That's just a metaphor here for finding our true heart, center, and life, and way of being. And as the Tao Te Ching says, it's not found by changing things. If you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. It's a little more subtle than that. So if we really look into the right now, with all of our conditioning and our karma and our past and whatever we think, you know, stuck in our psyche, all of our victim mentality, whatever we feel at the mercy of, right now in the present moment we might very nakedly arrive at a point where we could begin to, we might be, perhaps, maybe, begin to really look deeply at what we want, what we're looking for, what, if anything, we're missing. What brought us here? What are we looking for? What are we missing? What's wrong? Why are we always dissatisfied? Do we get do we get gypped somewhere? Do we get shortchanged? Why are we never satisfied? Always wanting something and getting things and not being satisfied. It's like drinking salt water which never quite alleviates our incessant thirst. In fact, might even make us more thirsty. Can we actually cut away all of this spiritual abracadabra and just find out, each of us, what we're looking for, what we want, what we're after? Or is it too hard to actually be that honest with ourselves? I mean, what if it just comes up with something that doesn't sound like enlightenment? You know, I want a new car. <laughs> I want a man. I, I want a baby. I want a million dollars. Let's open ourselves to the possibility. Maybe that's okay. Then we can begin to go with that on our way towards what we really want and need and aspire towards. Otherwise, it's like wearing other people's clothes, living somebody else's life, our parents' the life our parents would choose for us. Can we ask ourselves right now, what are we looking for? What do we want? What do we have to? 
And then what's keeping us from that right now? We want peace, we want freedom, whatever we want, or for that matter, a baby, a wife, or a million pounds, I should say. What's keeping us from that? Even if it's that simple, can we allow ourselves to go straight towards it, or do we have to do it crookedly, sidling into it sideways? You know, we can never go straight for anything, ask for what we want, reach out, afraid of getting rejected or whatever, sidling into it crookedly. As Zen Master said, I didn't say this before, he said, walk, run, but don't wobble. (laughs) Can we ever go straight forward, honestly, being ourselves? seeking for what we want, unashamedly. Who are we ashamed in front of? Who's looking? Nobody's looking. We're not babies, depends on our mothers. You know, we were probably, most of us, babies once. (laughs) (laughs) Then we would turn towards somebody else for everything. But, do we have to continue carrying that snapshot, that psychic, situation around with us always turned elsewhere for something. We carry this conditioning over into meditation and spiritual life turned elsewhere for something. This codependence, this is dependence, this is not the independence that we talk about so much. This is just dependence. We must move through this towards independence and finally realize our true interdependence, which is not needy, which is just a fact of life, the other side. But as long as we turn towards others for something, we're dependent. It's not interdependent at all. It's more like codependence, pathological. Anyway, without going into all that psychobabble, we were babies once, turned towards another for everything but we're still carrying around some of that body English, we call it in sports. We're still spinning that way. Our psyches are still partly frozen in that posture. Maybe we care about how we look to others when we meditate, or our life looks. very invested in what title we have, or how people perceive us, or well, if they know what we're doing, or they shouldn't know what we're doing, because we're afraid of their, their opinion. This is very crooked. This is very difficult, very limiting on ourselves. There is nothing missing. Nothing is wanting. Peace and happiness are available. The more we struggle, the tighter the knot gets, like trying to untie a shoelace. When you get frustrated, you know, maybe you just stop for a moment, then you can untie it after a minute very easily. The more you pull on it and fight with it, the tighter it gets. So you break it. That reminds me of our spiritual struggles in so many ways. Trying to figure it all out, wheels spinning. 
Who said we have to figure it out? Who said life has a meaning and we're supposed to know it? Where did that assumption come from? Who said enlightenment is the goal? I mean, why just take on these rumors and then live them out? They're just rumors. Rumors. Let's find out for ourselves. There is, if you I know only one way, that's the only way, actually. Awareness is everything. Awareness is curative. This is not just mental, intellectual. It's really hardy, soulful, immediate, juicy. It's a matter of the heart. It's a path with heart. It's really, it's really what we love. That's why it's important to really know, or at least look into, trying to find out what we really long for, want, and seek. Then the effortless effort comes forth. It's like we're not doing anything. We don't have to try to do anything. It just happens because it's our own passion pulling us to find out, to investigate, to look more deeply, to let go of what's useless and to take up what's really useful, however you want to explain it. And finally, there is not that much to do. We're all compulsive busybodies. If we step off the treadmill for one moment, you know, it's like I, I see it as like we're staggering forward on this treadmill under the momentum of our own conditioning not getting anywhere, but just trying to keep up. You just drop it for a moment, step off. <coughs> Even like coming here, it seems so hard to get out of our busy life, but you know, we can do it. The world will go on without us for one week. Even if we die, the world might go on. When do we ever really take a free breath? Even if we go on vacation, you know, how many countries or how many whatever do we have to do in that two weeks? We're very acquisitive relaxers and vacationers. It's very tiring after vacation. You have to rest for a few weeks. <laughs> I don't want to die with regrets about what I missed out on. You know, nobody... I took a census. Nobody ever has died on their deathbed saying I wish I had spent more time in the office <laughs> let's look into our priorities what is really meaningful to us not to our parents or whoever the authority figures are looming over our heads What's really meaningful to us? If we were going to die next year or tomorrow, how would we spend our time right now? Would we you know, be here or what would we do? Do we have unfinished business? Or what would we like to do? Let's reprioritize our efforts, our time, our energy in the light of the imminence of death, in the light of our mortality, our tenuous hold on life.
Nagarjuna said, you think it's amazing, surprising to be reborn or to have many lifetimes? It's even more amazing and surprising to have one. And yet we do. He said, "How um, the greatest miracle is that we even wake up in the morning, that we're still alive. But how long will this miracle go on? Who knows? And yet we're always procrastinating and putting off till later things. But later never comes. So I feel it's very important here when we really look into the possibility of simply doing what we're doing, being what we are, being very simple and utterly present and aware. There's nothing to do but be aware here. It illumines how compulsive and conditioned we are about doing and achieving, understanding, becoming, transforming, whatever you want to call it. So one of the main principles of Dzogchen, as in Taoism, Wu Wei, is this non-action. It means beyond will, not pushing, not pulling, not trying to do nothing also. It's beyond inaction and action both. Not being a quietist, it's extremely dynamic. Inquiry, awareness, incandescent present awareness luminous wakefulness not just giving one more push to the wheel of industry but settling more deeply at home in the center of the turning wheel in the center and learning to relax and enjoy the peace within when we were babies We depended on, let's say, most of us had a mother on our mother for whatever, milk or tit or bottle or, you know, embrace or cradling. Then it's true we were dependent on somebody else or something. And if they gave it, we were happy, and if they didn't, we were unhappy. But it is not them that made us feel good. The feeling good came from within. We were in our right place. They were nurturing us, but we that that bliss of the baby comes from being in its right place. It comes from within. But we got a little confused as we started to grow up and started to think it was coming from somebody else. Even when we're no longer dependent on somebody else, we have lost touch with the fact that it came from within and it can still come from within and we gave away our innate bliss completeness and wholeness and go through life trying to get it back from outside if you look into this you can see even now when you just sit here or sit in the garden or do what are you doing clean chop the vegetables that part of yourself that's involved, that's always relating to what's the surround, what they think of you, what you're doing, what you get at it, how it's going to look. It's 
some people tell me they're very nervous when they first start meditating with their eyes open. I say, why? I said, because everybody's looking at me, or everybody can see me. I mean, who's looking? Nobody's looking. Who cares? Anyway, what's there to look at? How do you think I feel? I sit up there, everybody's looking at me. <laughs> Not only that, I can't even sit here like a, a sane person. I have to sit here like this. <laughs> Holy Gaga. <laughs> My fiance said the first time she saw me, she thought I was really a stuffed turkey. <laughs> so ridiculous sitting like that. Little does she know the truth. <laughs> anyway, who's looking? And yet we're so turned outward, so concerned. So concerned. And this drives so many of our compulsions and our stance and our persona. So exhausting, isn't it? Holding up our persona all the time. Always trying to keep our best foot forward. It's like, you know, inching through life with your best foot forward. You can't even walk like everybody else. It's kind of like keeping your best foot forward all the time. Scuttling about like a crab with broken legs or something. Everybody else sees it except you. Anyway, you're the only one, you know, who pretends not to see this happening. Everybody else sees what you're doing. We're always standing on tiptoe, trying to be higher or above the crowd, you know. But just exhausting yourself, it's exhausting. Can we let any of this go ever? Ever? Or maybe we experience some great breakthrough in sex. And then, ah, what a relief, you know, total oneness, cosmic orgasm. And we mistake again, it's, co it's, it's coming from someone else. And we have to have that person, we have to have sex again rather than, oh, this is the natural state that I've been high, I've been retracted from. That's always accessible. You don't just have to have it through orgasm. It's not the other person that gives you that bliss. It's not sex. It's just the bubble broke for a moment and the sea was the sea as it always has been before we contract again, become like a little bubble trying to fight our way out. We don't have to burst the bubble even. The bubble is totally transparent. It's the sea itself. Anyway, I'd like to leave some room for questions so we don't go all night. But I think there's a very important principle to look into as to what we're doing. And are we really going directly towards what we want, need, and aspire towards? Or are we procrastinating, putting it off till later, till we retire, till after the kids graduate from school, or till whatever perfect princess or Prince Charming comes along, or whatever we think, till after we make enough money so then we can retire and meditate, or whatever. Are we putting it off? It won't be put off. It will not be put off. But when we start to create that habit of procrastinating, we never get around to doing it. That's the problem. Because what we're doing is procrastinating. That's what we're doing. That's what we'll be doing. Okay. Any questions, please, about the practice and things we've been doing here? Now we're getting towards the end of the week and things are hotting up.
<laughs> Jane? That's the gradual path of climbing the images of the spiritual mountain here, so climbing up from below. Could you still feel they have a plane? Doing both at the same time? Yeah, sure. If that's your thing. You know, just like fasting might have a place, or um, yoga movements, or uh, right livelihood, relationship is a way to you know, transcendence also. Everything has its place. Sure. But there's really no such thing as the preliminary practices. Everything is it. It's just when you put things in hierarchies, then you get hierarchies. That's, you know, I mean, it's like north, south, east, and west. Or, you know, it's made up. relative. That's what it means. I did the preliminary practices in Tibetan tradition three times. So I got a lot out of it, but it's better to have the view and know what the heart of the practice is than just to do a lot of, you know, prostrations like calisthenics and making a lot of rituals and ring bells and make prayers. You know, if you think about who's praying to who, it might be the best prayer of all. That kind of prayer is very clearly answered. Anyway, that's a Tibetan Buddhist question about the preliminaries. And, you know, in our one-month retreat in the summer in New York, we, we teach some of that, and people do that, of course. But the view of Dzogchen and Mahamudra enhances every relative practice. So if you are introduced to this, and you can, you know, if it resonates with your highest intuition, then it will enhance whatever you do not just so-called preliminary practices, but your cooking and your work and everything. Because everything is equal, you know, in, in one dimension. It's just what's happening at the moment. You could say everything is sacred, but that means everything is equal. And everything is equally part of the path if we make it that way, integrate it into our path. So that's why I say there are no preliminary practices. That's just that's just another way of, uh, you know, that's another map. It's just another map. What's the, what's the it's all the main practice. What's the, 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 I don't know how you pronounce it, you know, the teeth, one thing with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Trot, track, you know what I'm trying to say. Tick tock and tiptoe, top toe. I don't know, what difference does it make? That's the practice of Dzogchen, the things being, those two practices beginning with T. Yeah, no, right. oh, I've talked about this in the beginning. The word is tregchud, cutting through, right. or seeing through. Somebody wrote me a note and asked me to say it in Tibetan. It's tregchud, cutting through or seeing through. Sky gazing is part of the tregchud practice. Yes? Reality is like a dream. Everything is real. 
you ask. <laughs> Everything is real. Nothing is unreal. Nothing is real. Everything is unreal. It's <laughs> just concepts. One thing I'll say is that Buddhism, the genius of Buddhism, the middle way philosophy is that we don't make assertions. So we say, like a dream. Nobody knows what the hell it is. We don't say it's a dream. A dream is a dream. You know, if you had a dream last night, you had a dream. Reality, we can't say reality is a dream. Who's standing outside identifying it? I mean, you can't. So we say it's like a dream because it's just a, a metaphor or a simile so we don't get too invested in it. It's like a sandcastle. You know, even if it's concrete, even if it's, you know, the famous poem by Yeats, one of your boys, Ozymandias. <laughs> He's wandering around in the desert in, in Egypt and he finds this kind of little kind of piece of, I don't know, pyramid stone or some kind of, I don't know, you know, placard sticking out of the sand. It's like the corner of a cornerstone of some, you know, temple or marvelous construction of ancient times. And it says, I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my mighty eternal works, everyone, in despair. You know, the mighty eternal works, even, you know, like the pyramids, they just became sand after long enough time. Not just a sandcastle the children make. So that's what like a dream means. So we're not so holding on to our little sandcastles and our plans and our life. And yet at the same time, you know, in the other perspective, in the, in in the infinite sweep of geologic time and infinite space, you know, our life is not very much and very long. Whatever we do doesn't seem to matter that much. But in the relative, here and now, that's all there is. So every, everything counts in some way. The wheel of karma or cause and effect grinds exceedingly fine. And everything we do makes a difference. Touch the tiniest strand of the spider web and the whole web goes and we're all connected. Everything we do makes a difference. So that's the relation between the absolute truth of the dreamlike emptiness and the relative truth, reality, where we are here. Everything we do has consequences. If you accept those consequences, you can do anything. It's nice to say don't kill, but you know, you, I mean, everybody's free. You can kill, but you have to accept the consequences. Not just that you might go to prison or get killed, but that somebody else dies, you know. I mean, there's consequences, that's all. So it's not just that it's a dream and it doesn't matter. Those who understand the emptiness and the dreamlike unreality the most are probably the most compassionate, considerate, kindest people of all. That's my contention. If it doesn't show up in that way, then it's not real understanding. It's not real wisdom. Wisdom without love or compassion or kindness is, is sterile. It's, it's not really wisdom. And kindness and compassion without wisdom is blind. It's not complete. Yes? A couple of questions about the practice. Um, one is, uh, you know when you say um, um, dissolve, and remain thus. 
I usually say dissolve this. I don't, and I don't stress remaining too much. Uh-huh. <laughs> Even remaining is how five days? <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> I usually say dissolve this. Right, like yeah. the thoughts are dissolved, everything's dissolved and dissolved us. Yeah. Let it go. Because what happens is that if a, you know, if there was trying to remain, is that, it, you know, you, you, you can't. You can't right? Yeah. Well. <laughs> I'm glad you asked before you left. <laughs> I said, more questions. Very important. <laughs> to sort this out before Saturday. <laughs> so the other one was, in the, uh, I've probably got this wrong. So. No doubt. Uh, when you when you uh, say um, expel the body and mind into into space, I just say cast off. Cast it off. Okay. <laughs> These words are carefully chosen. Okay. They're the least worst I can find. You know. Well, the feeling I have is that somehow the heart's not always in it when when I do that, and then so what I do is kind of like I try to throw. Oh, express the heart in, in some mm-hmm. way too and I find that helps a lot but it does feel like it's the heart at least is still very centered in the, in the body so is that still in dualism or is I'm going on? don't worry about it who knows doesn't matter right <laughs> it's more like we're casting off the concept uh-huh. by concepts like trying to go in words and meditate well, you see, when I or right, when anything, I you with know, the heart, then the c- the concepts aren't there. But when I just try and do with the, the body and mind, it feels. We'll do it with the heart then. Right. That's why I say I just try and find the, the least worst words. Okay. But all the words are pointing in a very limited way. Okay. I mean, it's better to say nothing. But it'd be hard to do this all week if I never said anything, wouldn't it? <laughs> You know, the Buddha said, I I never said a word. Everybody heard what they needed to hear. That was his, I mean, this is just a teaching tale, but that, you know, like, what is there to say? Or what can you say? It's totally inexpressible. So do it with, you know, the heart, or however it works. That's the first principle. Can you say something about what, if anything, sustains conviction? Conviction. Conviction. And inquiry, you know. Um, I use the word conviction. Of course, you know, Oriental teachers would say faith or devotion, mm-hmm. which is a little more problematic to us, isn't it? So, conviction is where it's really pointed. But you have to, you know, conviction is only something you arrive at. It's not. You, know, you don't get it when you come in the door here just because you pay the whatever it is, 80 quid. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's something you develop. It's something you develop. It's like common sense. It's very difficult to fabricate it, make it up, get it, you know. But it's also difficult to lose it when it grows, when you have it, right? Conviction is something that comes through finding out for yourself <coughs> nobody else can tell you otherwise that's why I say it's not just not a faith 
just a matter of devotion. You know, those are the beginning stages, perhaps. But what we arrive at is conviction, and conviction keeps you going. Even if you're the last bodhisattva in the universe, what else is there to do? You just carry on. Does that um, speak to what you're asking about? Do you want to try again? Well, the answer I expected, but somehow there's still times when you feel seem readily available. Yeah. Right. Well, then you you know you could fall back on the traditionalists say fall back on faith and devotion, and do some devotional practices that can help reconnect you with the conviction. You know, with that deeper sense where it does make sense, you know, the deeper connection that does make sense. You know, Westerners, as Westerners, we're kind of, we're rational skeptics and so on, which is fine, you know, and appropriate for us. Uh, so maybe devotion and faith don't exactly turn us on as, as tools, but, you know, you might think you don't have any faith, but you have faith to sit here cross-legged, you think sitting cross-legged it does something. As a, as a religious act. I mean, not everybody believes that. So, you know, there is Buddhist sort of faith moving about and, you know, listening to the teacher or keeping silent or being vegetarian or doing whatever we do. So there, this is how faith works and faith leads to, or devotion for that matter, you know, those are pretty connected, leads to conviction as we find that how it actually does work. Like we slow down and quiet down enough to actually see for ourselves how things are, independent of what position our legs are in or whether it's silent or not. But in the beginning, it's a good tool. So faith, you know, and devotion lead to deepening conviction. And as I said, it's impossible to fab to make that up, but you can work on it. So it comes, you know. I mean, I use spiritual readings, for example. It's not that I'm always just avariciously reading new books, which I do, but I read the same old stuff that I love, and that really inspires me. You know, it's like inspiration. Maybe that's what I was thinking about when I said sustain. That, you know, it's like there are certain sources of inspiration that we can draw on, and you know best what they are for you. So that's a good way to sustain your conviction, or by being part of a sangha. So that even though we're on the roller coaster, you know, we're still there with a bunch of friends at the amusement park having a good time, even though we're scared. So that's the bigger picture of how to sustain the, the you know the experience as you intend it to be. Not just be screaming with fright and forget that you're having a good time at the roller coaster thing, you know, with your friends. So I think staying in touch with whatever inspires us, we're actually consciously, you know, having those things around that whatever it is, in your case, maybe your computer. <laughs> yes, Mary? Um, you know the walking meditation with the eyes closed. So, um, you have to really pay attention in case they drop down a hole or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. That's how I broke my ankle. No. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Out of order. But um, I can't. I mean, 
come a point where they're all working. You know, if I'm concentrating on putting my feet down, I'm not going to drop down a hole. I may can get my ears working. And my nose, I can't... You can't get your nose working? That's because you don't have a nose. It says in the sutra there's no nose. It's because you don't have a nose. Can you see your nose? No. Then how do you know you have a nose? No, no I need to smell, don't I? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep your nostrils flared. <laughs> no, but it's a good question. When we do this... Yes, definitely. That's the idea. Wow. You be, you're working towards being so aware that that's what Buddha called omniscient. Omniscient. That's the I don't know that word. knowing everything. Omniscient. Knowing everything. Omniscient. When we do this kind of walking meditation with eyes closed, if we do it in a group, you actually find that your sense of smell and temperature and everything becomes very handy. Maybe it's doing it on your own. Well, whatever, but on your own you'll find it too. You might smell that the bushes are on you here Mm -hmm. and that the cars are over here as you walk back and forth. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's why I say use use your rear lights also. Use the light in the back of your head in the back of your heels, you know. There are other lights. The clear light of awareness functions through all of our senses, not just our visual sense. You might smell the car so you know where you are in the driveway or the flowers or the, I don't know, the compost pile. You know, you might, like if you're doing it in a room, you might know where the window is by the change in, in pressure, which you feel in your ears, or by the, the sense of the cold air. You know, where's the radiators, where's the window, as you go around a room. Like blind people are much more aware of the other senses because they don't have this one happening. So this opens our sensory awareness and more and more aware. That's the idea. That's fine. Actually, according to Buddhist psychology, it says you can only, the mind can only be aware of one, like thought, thought at a time so like a smell or whatever it's called a thought you know it just means like a perception or something at a time so the idea actually is to get so refined that you actually are that only at that moment that's total awareness just that then there's no you you know like I am hearing something there's just that so it's good going in that direction. If you're just your feet, that might seem a little befuddling when you think of it now, but I'll bet you in a few days when you're home or at work and you have a million things going on, you might remember with fondness how relaxed it was just to be your feet. <laughs> you know what I mean? How simple that was. And there's great peace in that. This is not just made up, you know. There is great peace in the things just as they are. It's true. This total presence is unbelievably relaxed. It's better than sleep. 
that's why some lamas, some yogis I know, by that I mean like pretty realized lama yogis, they don't sleep. Drukchen Rinpoche doesn't sleep. He doesn't get in his pajamas and he doesn't lie down at night. <laughs> Sometimes it's four in the morning, his head goes down just on his table, but otherwise he doesn't sleep. I mean, I sleep for half an hour, like with his head down on his table. But he doesn't have to sleep because he is at rest and he medit- when he meditates, it's better than sleep. There's no fitful tossing and turning, dreaming or anything else. This isn't just a rumor. I'm not talking about somebody who lived 2,000 years ago. I know some of these people. You might experience it yourself when you really, like maybe if you fast or do yoga or meditate a lot, you might need to sleep less. Because the mind is less obscure in the heart. The mind is more open and flowing. There's less resistance. We're not tired. Yeah? I was thinking when you take a cat nap, uh, you, you don't actually quite get to sleep. It's, it's really uh, just 10 minutes, but it's so much more refreshing than actually getting to sleep in the whole afternoon away. Yeah. That's right. Oh, it's like if you sleep too much, you try to stay in bed as long as you can because you're depressed or whatever reason. It's like you start to get enervated, you know, more and more tired instead of more refreshed. You get sluggish or whatever. Did you have a question? Yes. Um, you showed us your mala the other day. I did? <laughs> I don't remember. Is it, no? is it on your neck? I showed it to you. Yes, it's on the page. And today I was walking, and I, I thought, uh, you know, my mind was, was not busy, but I thought, you know, it might be easier just to do the, the mantra. Mm-hmm. And I thought, for those of us who are not yoginis at this point, or you're a yogini. That means a practitioner of oh, the so path. Yogi then. Yogini means female practitioner. So, or who are these yogis that you're just talking? I come about some lamas who practice. So what's the difference between a yogi and yogini? Anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, what I'm wondering is how it was just uh, good to use the mantra. Gate, gate. <laughs> gate, gate. <laughs> the gate mantra. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? But um, I never used I never used the mala, but I certainly used the rosary as a kid. But uh, what is the how do you, what is, how do you use the mala? Like a rosary. Okay, but I mean, how many? You see, you, you already know everything you need to know. I've been telling you all week. It's like a rosary. Well, I'm just curious. You count one by one with one. Each mantra each with one bead. One, yeah, one mantra, one bead. Okay, and how many beads? Is this 108? Generally, these Indi- uh, t- kind of t- Indo-Tibetan <coughs> rosaries have 108 beads. It might have 111. Some of them break off, might have 106. <laughs> but it's supposed to have a little more than 100 to make up for the ones you miss. <laughs> then when you go around once, you count it as 100. And then uh, those are counters, those little abacus. Thing. They slip. Right, so it's also the rings move like an abacus. This is ancient history, you see. You might as well just carry a little thing in your hand, a little computerized <laughs> clicker like they have at the movies to count the patrons, you know? To well, come is in. this part of the practice then that you were supposed to do a certain number? Yeah. 108. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you're advanced, you don't need to be. You just do whatever you do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, 
But even Ram Dass, he has one too. And so, I'm thinking that. <laughs> 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 even Ram Dass? He's a big one. <laughs> 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 I won't tell him you said that. <laughs> Roger, don't tell him. <laughs> I know. I know about Ramdas. And I think Ram, but Ramdas gives everyone one, so that's a good thing about Ramdas is a little rosary. Only if you pay, if you didn't pay. I, I didn't know that, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is. So, in other words, you and Ramdas are not advanced enough, but you, but you still need to have this. I guess so. Your mind still wants it. You still need to see the need. I don't really use it, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen me use it? <laughs> I'm just into jewelry, as you can see. <laughs> well, you know Ramdas used to see it. Yeah, no, we're just joking. But there are many ways, reasons for using it, not just because your mind is wandering. Like, uh, it's a mo- uh, concentration is not much used in Dzogchen practice. Mm-hmm. Like what if somebody's dying and they ask me to pray for them, so maybe I count 21 times a certain prayer for them or something. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a good sensory device. Sometimes I use it. It's a very good sensory device. It reminds you what you're doing. And it feels good and it's been blessed by my teachers and also by... Uh, many, many mantras and practices, and we shouldn't get spiritually paralyzed just because <coughs> we think things are at different levels, or, or you know, there's nothing to do and no one to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like if you can't just cut through in one moment, totally to the essence, just like swooping down from above. Then you have to go a little more gradually, so you might do a little centering thing, or a little self-inquiry, or a little devotional practice, or open your spiritual reading, even if it's just two lines from Rumi. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the whole Bhagavad Gita or Heart Sutra. You know, Rumi says there's millions of ways to kneel and, cu- and kiss the ground. You don't just have to kneel and kiss the ground and bow towards Mecca. There's millions of ways. Any way will do, as long as it does it for you. I think of a line like that, it's enough. But why paralyze oneself and not even think of it and just, you know, feel discombobulated? One can be more free than that. Don't be paralyzed. I mean, if you really want to get paralyzed and depressed, <coughs> you might say, why even get out of bed in the morning? Just get back in at night. <laughs> What's the point? You just stay in bed. Some yogis do. <laughs> yeah. And what else is there to do? If you just, you know, everything's meaningless. Just stay in bed. That's a little extreme, isn't it? But that's the way the mind tends. If you really go with the mind, that's where you end up, in one way or another, in a very small box, a gilded cage. Any other burning questions before we yeah. wrap it up? In yes. In the triple cage, it says you commit acts that you think benefit others, but as a matter of fact, you, you, because you're not a noble being, they really don't, and they fetter you. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, for example, if you teach 
spirituality and you're not really ready to. Maybe you're harming others instead of benefiting them or you're, you're increasing your own pride or ego instead of diminishing it. Is that a clear example? So there are many ways. It's like if you, if you think it's kind you know, and compassionate to go and convert the heathens, but you don't have wisdom, then you don't really see what they know. You just impose yourself on them. And you might think you're doing a good missionary job, but maybe it's not really Christ's true work. And how do you judge what's good and what's not? Well, very carefully. <laughs> very, very, um, you know, mindfully, conscientiously with everything you've got. Not just frivolously, quickly, or because, you know, I don't know, you get paid for it, or very carefully. I mean, it might seem like a good thing to go to a spiritual retreat here, but maybe, you know, to go you had to tie your kid up in the closet <laughs> or whatever. So, you know, we all, there are errors of omission, things, you know, there are errors of, com- there are things that ha- are, are errors, even though it's not like we're really doing something, you know, it's like still an error. It's not just errors of commission where we do something. But there's errors of omission. Well, by paying attention and being very honest and conscientious. And if that is too, if that's too hard, then you get out. You know, there are many books, rule books, the Ten Commandments or the Five Precepts or whatever you, you know, Mao's Little Red Book or whatever you follow. <laughs> that's where all of those operating manuals are for, in case you can't, you know, just easily divide, decide for yourself. But I'd say if you're conscientious and honest, it's not that difficult. Of course we make mistakes, but they won't be the fatal ones, probably. At least we'll be responsible for them. You know, you can only do your best. That's the best and the most anyone can expect from you. Maybe you don't have enough confidence in yourself. We all have a lot of unenlightened gurus telling us what to do. You know, if you want to be told what to do, at least find somebody who really knows. Yes, in the back. Um, just uh, following on from that, can you say something about the inner voice, like inner, like a voice that would come up as, as a thought form, like when you have? experience that or what you think of what are you talking about like channeling or, or no, no, no. I'm what are you talking about, I would listen to that voice exactly, and it's very important, exactly as I listen to all other voices from every other probably unenlightened guru in the whole universe. You know what I'm saying? Check it out. 
just because it sounds like it's coming from within. It might just be an echo of somebody else's voice. Just check it out. I wouldn't say that must be the inner voice of God speaking. It might be an echo of you know, what your mother or some other unenlightened guru told you. That's coming back. I mean, the way I, the way I know that when it checks out is like, for instance, uh, you know, like coming on this retreat or whatever it is, like, you know, I was getting a very strong yes, even though all other circumstances were pointing in the opposite direction. Well, I, you just check it out and you listen, you decide whether you listen to other people's advice, don't you? So I would hear it just like that kind of advice. I'm just saying don't give it preeminence as if it's, you're talking about voice, you didn't say you know it's right, you're just saying you hear a voice, so I'm saying it's just a voice. I don't know. At the meditation center in Massachusetts, some a student kept hearing voices that were telling him to kill the teachers. <laughs> it's not a joke. It went on for a few weeks and, you know, so he finally told the teachers he was getting out of control, he was going to come and kill them. If, if it kept telling him they had to take him away. So, you know, it was a voice from within. I would say be conscientious and, and honest, that's all. Now you don't trip out on weird, any kind of weird direction. Just an addendum to that is that, you know, some of you I've got this constant running commentary of voices. <laughs> Occasionally when I'm... Well, we all do. Those are just called our yeah, thoughts. Yeah, but I can't. When I really want to ask the question, and, uh, you know, then maybe it'll come up as one word, like yes, or, you know, just, just checking out what you're dealing with on that thing. Right. Well, I'll uh, just take up the other side. Sometimes I just put my hands together or enter into a prayerful attitude and it's almost like listening and maybe something will come. I wouldn't describe it as a voice. But if I'm still enough, then maybe there's some, you get a sense of which way the direction is moving. Why personify it? But if you're still and you're honest and you're genuine, if you're really still, if you're not trying to wait the outcome one way or another, you get good indications from the inner guru, but that's not a person, it's not a voice, it's not anything. But it comes in a thoughtful. Okay. It, it might. It might. But it might not. <coughs> it might be a feeling or it might be, you know, I don't know, your body might start to move or... But again, I would say, this is about sanity, not insanity, though. Just be very honest and conscientious and check out what's going on and which way you're pushing and pulling. Then you can know for yourself. So let's end here for tonight.